0: Well, thank you, Ann, and thank you, everyone who's participated, which means everybody here this morning. It's a, a new year and a beautiful start here at 1548 Heights, uh, brisk, fresh air, symbolic, I think, of what's going to happen this year, as was the symbolism of a baby being born. Huh, Matthias, welcome. A wedding last night, David and Sarah, congratulations. Good signs for what might be upon us for 2024. I read an article this week, a little short article, caught my attention, entitled Words You Cannot Say at Church. And the title immediately made me think of George Carlin and his take on words you couldn't say on the radio, and I thought that might be the direction, but it wasn't it was actually nothing to do with that. It had everything to do with other kinds of words you're never supposed to say at church. And one that caught my attention was the word that you should never use at church is visitor. Don't ever say visitor. We welcome our visitors. That makes people feel like they're outside looking in. And you should say the word guest instead And I never thought of that before. I read that last week. I'd never thought. That thought never had occurred to me that I shouldn't say the word visitor, but I should say the word guest. Then I thought about it last night when I was with Ellen and Teresa Kramer, who the three of us were invited into the home of Dan and Kim Greer who live here in the Heights, they're in this community, and they're members of this congregation. And before a lovely meal of roast beef and mashed potatoes and garden salad, Dan led a prayer. And in the prayer, he thanked God for, among other things, lifelong friends and new friends. And as he said those words, he was talking to God, but I was listening, and When he said the word new friends, I knew who I was. I was a new friend, and I wasn't a visitor in his home. I was a guest, and uh, it made me feel special, (laughs) made me feel welcome, a part of this friendship and this family. I wasn't a stranger. I was a friend. Some people call that the open table. Some call it hospitality. It's the basis of real community community, what we all, all of us, everyone in this room, everyone in this comu- in this neighborhood, everyone in this country is longing for, desperately longing for community, to be with people, to belong, to be a part of something that matters. And so last night as we sat around the table, we talked about all sorts of things. We talked about restaurants. And I highly recommend <laughs> that if you're in need of a restaurant, you might seek the advice of Dan, who does this on the side in something of a professional way, and he has expertise on it. But we talked about restaurants, we talked about football teams, and i they were all concerned about me, I think, when I walked in. But when I told them I was a recent convert to the Houston Texans, that relieved all the fears, and I was, <laughs> and we talked about funny things people say at church. And then eventually we talked about things that matter most, what's on each one of our hearts that we're concerned about. I love this church. I love these people. I love you. You are good people. You're about good things here. You're about the business of God. And as has been mentioned already, uh, we've taken on as a congregation a major task that will bring in a new minister, a lead minister, a preaching minister, senior minister kind of person here at 1548 Heights. Where do you start with something like that? Well, I guess you hire a consultant. (laughs) You begin to plan a process. You select a search team. You divide them into sub-teams. You assess the congregation. You assess the community, and you assess what other faith groups are doing in the neighborhood and you write a history of the congregation, you put it into a package and you reach out to recommenders who will recommend candidates and on it goes. It's a lot of work. It's exhausting when you think about it. All these things that need to be done, all the organization in this process. It reminds me of the task of the early church. When the church first began there were 12 of them that were following Jesus, and then eventually it was down to 11. And that's where we pick up the reading this morning. It's the book of Acts. It's the second volume of Luke's two-volume work. The first volume, obviously, is the Gospel of Luke. And the second volume is the book of Acts, two volumes, volume 1 and volume 2. And as the second volume begins, it kind of overlaps with the first volume. There had been the death and the resurrection of Jesus, and now there's the ascension. He's come back for a short period of time. He's going to ascend into heaven. And as Acts begins, it has the last conversations that Jesus has with his disciples when he lays out the major task that is before them. Reading begins in chapter 1, verse 8. Jesus is talking now to these disciples. You, he says to them, will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And when he had said this, as they were watching, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while he was going... And they were gazing up toward heaven. Suddenly, two men in white robes stood by them, and they said, Men of Galilee, why, are you, why do you stand looking up toward heaven? This Jesus, who has been taken from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go. And then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, short distance away. When they'd entered the city, they went to the room upstairs where they were staying. and Then Luke lists all the names. There was Peter and John, James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas, the son of James. And all of these, there's 11 that I just listed, all of these were constantly devoting themselves to prayer together with certain women, including Mary, the mother of Jesus, as well as his brothers. What do you do when you've been given a monster job? A monster job, and little time to do it. You have been elected chairperson of the PTA, and now your responsibility is the fund drive for the playground material. You have to be in charge of raising $300,000, including software and computer stuff, by March 15th. What are you going to do? You have just received a phone call from the IRS. You're being audited. You'll need to find and organize every single receipt that you have in your possession for the last seven years. What are you going to do? you have been promoted. You're going to be moving to St. Louis. The company is not dealing with the house. You have to sell it. Before March 15th, repairs, paint, leaking faucets, the lawn, the trees that you've been putting off, the junk that's in the garage. What are you going to do? A monster task, and that's what's happened in this text. Jesus is about to ascend into heaven, and the last words out of his mouth are, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, and Samaria to the ends of the earth. That's the disciples' responsibility. And what's the first thing they do? They gather together and they pray. Now, I would have expected these disciples to have been engaged in more, how shall I say this, useful activity. The ends of the earth, we need to be organized. We need to get ready. We need a strategy. We have to be evangelistic, I guess, to who? The ends of the earth? That's Jews, of course, but also Samaritans and Gentiles. Oh my, that's what he said. We'll need to have some meetings. We'll need to be prepared. We'll need to role model this. We'll have to play act. We'll have to imagine this room full of Gentiles. We need to get ready for these people. We need to do some language studies. We need to do cross cultural preparation. We've got work to do. We'll need a preacher. We'll need a worship leader. We'll need greeters. We need to have friendly people, handsome people, people that'll have name tags for us. We need somebody in charge of the children. What are we going to do with the kids? We'll have to have junior worship and Bible class teachers and activities and an educational coordinator. We need people to take charge. Anybody thought about the food? No, somebody's got to be thinking about the food. What about the money? Yes, we're going to need a treasure. In Acts, they had reason to think like this because they had business to do, and business they get. In Acts chapter, in the second chapter, I mean of the book of Acts, there's 3,000 people who were baptized. 3,000. We'll need a baptistry. We'll need towels. We'll need baptismal gardens, gowns. I say that we get a horse trough. I know a guy that builds baptistries. I know somebody that has a portable baptistry that we could bring in. 3,000 responses. Can you imagine? We're going to need a PA system. Who's going to be recording Peter's sermon? There's a lot of activity to do because they're going to be in business. And by the third chapter, there's a healing, a healing. A lame man is healed we're going to need PR for that. We'll have a testimony. We have, we'll have the guy write a book. We'll have to call a publisher. Let somebody call the newspaper. I know somebody at the TV station. I know somebody at the radio. Let's make sure we get it on tape. Oh, there's all sorts of useful stuff that we have to do because they're going to be in business and business they get. In the fourth chapter, there's trouble, trouble with the religious leaders ooh, we're going to need a lawyer, and we'll have to have a contract, and we'll have to have somehow disclaim the legal restrictions. Oh, there's so much that we've got to do because they're in business and business they get. In Acts chapter 5, somebody dies. Ananias and Sapphira die. Funeral arrangements, bereavement committee, Ushers, flowers, cards. We have to have a counseling ministry. Oh, there's so much useful work that we need to do. When you get business like this, you've got problems, or we should call them opportunities. And how are we going to deal with them? Where will we get the solutions? We'll need to organize committees, programs, finances. And that's why the disciples' response is so surprising. The first thing they do is gather to pray. Jesus orders his assignment to the four corners of the earth, he says. They don't select. They don't organize. They don't put themselves into positions. They don't rely on their ample resources. Their first task is to pray. And so the business of the church is more than busyness, it's more than strenuous effort, it's more than earnest striving. In the early church, the most useful thing they could possibly do is gather to pray. I remember, I'm ashamed to say, the first time that I heard of a Roman Catholic order of monks and priests whose only responsibility is to pray. And I said, that's their job? They said, yeah. They don't do anything else? No. I said, what a waste. Who has the vision of the early Christians? When we wait on God, we do. They rely on God in Acts chapter 1 and verse 14. Every one of them, men as well as the women, they didn't decide, assign the women to the kitchen duty or the nursery duty. They, with the men, have the top responsibility, the number one responsibility to pray. The women, in Luke's first gospel, they've been following Jesus for some time, we know, all the way from Galilee, Luke tells us in chapter eight. They witness his death, his, resurrection, his burial, and his resurrection. And now here, they are present, waiting, And praying and anticipating the Spirit. And the one woman here that is named is Mary, and Luke makes sure that we know which Mary it is, it's the mother of Jesus. And Luke has been quiet about Mary, the mother of Jesus. He hasn't mentioned her by name since the birth narratives in the first three chapters of his first gospel. Mary, Luke says, had the Holy Spirit overshadow her. That's the language he uses in chapter 1 of Luke and verse 35. The Holy Spirit overshadowed her, and she gave birth to the Messiah. And now, here Mary, the mother of Jesus, is present again, just before the gift of the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit gives birth to the church. It's the job of everyone to pray. This, of course, isn't the only time that the church prays. The early church will continue to pray when they select a replacement for Judas in verse 24. And when the church hears the threats from the religious leaders against them, the first thing they do is pray. And when they select seven men to help the widows in chapter 6, the first thing they do is pray. And when the Samarians were converted, the apostles came in chapter 8, and the first thing they do is pray. And before Peter raised Tabitha from the dead in chapter 9, the first thing he does is pray. And before Peter was released from prison in chapter 12, the church was praying for him. You get the picture. Before the missionary journey, they're praying. But when the disciples are praying in Acts chapter 1, verse 14, it is setting in motion a custom that will follow them all the way through this first story of the church, all the way through this thing we call the book of Acts, and that is the custom of prayer at every single stage. Of course, it's what they learn from Jesus himself. Jesus prayed during his baptism in the gospel of Luke. He prayed before he selected the twelve, he prayed during the Transfiguration. He, re, he prayed at the return of the Seventy. He prayed before Peter's great confession. He prayed. In fact, Luke says that Jesus would often slip away into the wilderness and pray. Luke says that Jesus would spend an entire night in prayer. After several months of observing Jesus, the disciples finally ask him in chapter 11, Lord, would you teach us how to pray? You know me, I think, well enough by now to wonder if this is, is this coming from this guy? So far, so good, but is this really coming from his heart? And I have to confess to you that when I talk about prayer, I feel like a hypocrite. Because nobody has ever who knows me has ever turned to me and said, you're a prayer warrior. I'm not a prayer warrior. What I am is a disciple of Jesus. And by definition, a disciple of Jesus means learner, a trainee, (laughs) an apprentice, somebody who is in the company of another person learning to be like that person under working conditions in in order to become capable of doing what that person does, of becoming who that person is. And so you and me, we call ourselves disciples of Jesus. And so they were, in verses 13 and 14 in the book of Acts, in the first chapter, disciples of Jesus. And at times like this, we know enough that this is a time for us to pray. As disciples of Jesus, we're learning from Jesus to live our lives as if we were him, not doing everything that he did, but learning to do what we do in the kind of way that he did things. And he was a person of prayer and so we here at 1548 the heights have our lives to live at this time at this place with this family with these talents that have been given to us all of us with the with the opportunities and the challenges and the problems that are before us and as Jesus did we do we pray it's the first thing and it accents everything we do it's our custom When the children take ill, when the demands of work are more than you can bear, when conflict with the spouse seems to be never-ending, when your health is poor, when finances are a concern, of course we know the first order of business is to pray. The disciples are told that they have a massive responsibility to be witnesses of Jesus to the ends of the earth. Yes, everywhere. Cover the earth. And you only have so many days. Get busy. No, stop and pray. It's overwhelming, isn't it? But Jesus himself encouraged us. He said, you parents know how to give good gifts to your children. You know that. How much more does your Father in heaven know how to give good gifts to you, his children? And a wicked judge, he goes on to say, a wicked judge once one time had a woman come after him who a widow who was pestering him for justice. And even though that wicked judge did not fear God or respect human beings, he gave in to that person, that woman's requests. Now, if a wicked judge will respond favorably, how much more will your Father in heaven? The reason we wait and pray is that the power and the wisdom and the energy to go forward has to come from someplace from somewhere beyond ourselves, the reason we pray isn't that prayer works; it's because God works, because God listens and God cares and God acts. What I've just said came to me a different way, and I was so shocked when I first heard it. One of my favorite professors, a person I really be- I believed in, I trusted, who opened my eyes to so many things, he said, "I don't believe in prayer." Huh what? You don't believe in prayer? He says, no, I don't believe in prayer. I believe in God. (laughs) Okay. The reason we pray is not that prayer works, but that God works, that God listens, that God cares, and God acts. And so, this sermon is not to introduce us to prayer. This is a praying congregation, and all the songs that we sang this morning our prayers in song. You have many opportunities, including Wednesday night, to pray. This is who we are, to, remem- to remind ourselves who we are. And so you've been given a monster job. This church, this husband, these children, this job, this life, the impulse is to start organizing. But instead, all of us, we pray. We pray because Jesus prayed. We pray not because we're hypocrites, though we are, but because we are disciples and learners, and our motivation, our motivation is the belief knowing that there is a God, and God is listening, and God will answer our prayers. Now, the invitation is to continue our prayer in this song, and then we'll close with a prayer and a benediction.